Hey everybody, and welcome to the podcast. With me today is uh, my good friend, Brody Brown. Brody, how we doing? Hey, doing pretty good. <clears throat> A little bit tired this morning, but who isn't? Yeah, hey, I, w- I was sick last week, so, you know. I feel like everybody's been sick the last couple of weeks. <laughs> yeah, all the pollen on the, um, like, I walk out to my truck every morning and it's just covered in pollen. Yeah, I. it's like you open a door to the outside and it's just this giant puff of yellow you know, plant sperm just blowing into your face. Yeah. But. Um, yeah, man, so how you been? I've been doing pretty well. How about you, Trey? I'm doing... Uh, Pretty good. Um, exciting news for the podcast, I guess, before we like really get started is um, I made a shirt. Really? That has the logo on it. Nice. But here's the kicker. Um, I only made one. Oh. So, like, it's not for sale or anything. I'm just going to have it. Do you have it now? No, it's coming in Friday. Okay. Um. But yeah, I, I mean, it's not for sale or anything. But um, if if the listeners want it, then they you they need to there. they need to express some interest. I'd buy a no rules shirt. Okay, it's just um, so there's some interest. It's a comfort color shirt, so you know, like I'm not skimping on quality here. And Naturally. then um, so it's a white comfort colors with there's nothing on the back because um, it gets a little pricey when you start putting <laughs> stuff on the back. But um, it's just like a little pocket tee with a, uh, it has the ruler at the top and then it says there are no rules. So um, I don't have a price yet, but I um, think like if we, if we get enough orders in, I'm going to say 15 bucks. I don't know how many orders that is, but. Um, just whatever's economical. Yeah. <laughs> in, in this economy. <laughs> that's the truth um anyways bernie so i was thinking in the truck this morning about what i wanted to talk to you about and so i guess um with you being a actually let me backtrack real quick the re i mean i was gonna have you on the podcast mm-hmm. but i put out a thing this week on the instagram and i was like tell me why you should be on the podcast and you were you you had like the most elaborate uh, response. I'd say a lot of people were like, "Oh, because I'm your friend," or "Oh, because like like you've known me for a long time," or something like that. But you said, and uh, this isn't a direct quote, but you basically said you can talk about any obscure fact in history for however long a time. Um, unfortunately, we don't have eternity <laughs> to talk. That's unfortunate. But, yeah, it is. <laughs> um, but anyways, I guess to get the ball rolling, um, what's like? And and you're a, do you want to introduce yourself real quick? Uh, sure. Um, just a little background. I'm a, a history major at UA. Um, outside of school, I'm also just a big history nerd. Um, I like dealing with a lot of historical subjects. Kind of is what interests me the most. Gets me gets me going intellectually I suppose it's you know I'm a big nerd but I embrace it especially when it comes to stuff like that I just really enjoy talking about it yeah um so Brody with that being said uh would you like to tell the 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 listeners your most obscure uh 
history fact or story or whatever? Oh, most obscure history fact. Well, there's some there's some good ones. It's one that I'm particularly uh, fond of right now, um, just given my class load and what I'm what I've been dealing with recently, is the uh, the defenestration of Prague. Now, the defenestration of Prague, which I'm sure is something that most people have heard about if they've gone through any sort of higher education history study or any study of European history, um, was an event in 1618 in which several individuals in Bohemia, which is now uh, the Czech Republic, threw several other individuals out a window to protest the king of Bohemia. Well, defenestration, to backtrack, is the English word for throwing someone out the window. Now, defenestration itself I find to be a very obscure uh, term and one that I don't think it's used enough. Granted, I don't think enough people get thrown out of windows these days. Um, so I guess that's, that's a point for the, for the story. But perhaps my favorite part of the story is the 1618 defenestration of Prague was not, in fact the only defenestration of Prague, and it was not even the first defenestration of Prague. This has happened before um, during the Hussite rebellions um, a few centuries earlier, in which the first defenestration of Prague occurred in a relatively similar manner. So I guess, I guess in a grand scheme summary, um, the second defenestration of Prague in 1618 is probably my favorite fact that most people don't consider when they talk about history yeah just due to the the circumstances surrounding it i think it's just the concept of a bunch of rich powerful people seizing a bunch of other rich powerful people and throwing them out the window to protest more rich powerful people is just a really fun concept to, to talk about especially when you think about the fact that it is a uh, direct you know sparking point for per capita, the most deadly conflict in European history, which was the 30 years war that lasted for 30 years after that. Yeah. Um, so like, how did, I'm not sure how much you know about this, but, um, like how did somebody come up with the word? Like, did it just happen so much (laughs) that they were like, we have to come up with a word for this? That's actually a really good question, and from my own experience, I haven't found an answer. And trust me, I've asked the question to multiple uh, academics and, and, and professionals in the field, and nobody really knows like how often these events happen to the point where they had to make up a word for it. But the word for it existed prior to calling it the defenestration of Prague. They didn't inv- Obviously, the word existed before the event. They didn't invent a word just to describe the event. But I have no idea how frequent these were. Apparently, they were at least somewhat frequent um, because there's a lot of things that I can think of that don't have a word attached to them that aren't super frequent but are probably as frequent as throwing somebody out of a window. Right. Well, can't think of any off the top of my head because they don't have any words attached to them. Exactly. But... I think, you know, etymology, you know, the study of how words come around, I think defenestrate means like, obviously you have D, which is like anti or whatever, and then finestrate. I'm assuming it's just, if you break it down, it's 
some sort of Latin or something. Yeah. I don't know. I'm not a linguist, but probably just literally specifically means taking somebody out of a window. But no idea how frequently <laughs> it was used. Yeah, I was just going to say, like, I've I've definitely heard about that before, but, like, you know, I only thought there was one, you know. No, yeah, well, like were, you said. There like, were two. Yeah. The um, one everybody knows is the second one. Yeah. Um, it may just be a, a bohemian thing, the checks and, and throwing people out a window. Yeah. yeah. I don't mean to insult any Czechian listeners, but <laughs> I don't think we have any currently. Well, um, not yet. Maybe this will bring them in talking <laughs> yeah, about hopefully <laughs> the national custom of defenestrating. Is people. that like, um, is it talked about in their country? Like openly? I'm like, I'm pretty sure. I mean, I've never been to the Czech Republic, but I think yeah. they, I mean, it's a pretty big part of their history. So I think it's oh, okay. yeah. pretty frequently like for us, it's entirely obscure because it has nothing to do with, you know, the United States, yeah. but for somebody in the Czech Republic, I'm pretty sure they consider it a big deal. At least okay. they have a, a monument where the people fell mm. out of the window. <laughs> <laughs> All three people involved in the defenestration survived, by the way. Really? I, I don't know. For the people that have heard of the incident, they were thrown out of a several-story tall palace onto rocky ground, and all three of the people that were defenestrated survived with major injuries, but they did survive. Yeah. And all of them put the uh, emphasis on their survival on the fact that apparently, according to bystanders and the people that fell, the Virgin Mary appeared in the sky and like caught them and set them down gently. It was, it's considered a, like one of those instances of, you know, a miracle in, in Czech Catholic history, which is just another interesting component. Are there a lot of, so like the Czech Republic is mostly Catholic. It was after the 30 years war Okay. prior to the whole point of the defenestration was three people who were thrown out the window were Catholics and were regents of the king, who was also Catholic. Mm-hmm. The people that threw them out the window were Protestants, mostly like Calvinists or whatever, yeah. who felt as though the king and his regents were infringing upon their religious liberties, which was true, but also probably not true enough to, you know, like throw somebody out of yeah, the window. Yeah, chuck them out of the window. Right. But that's what they saw fit to do. And, and so the whole thing was based on on religious grounds. So hmm. a lot of people look back at you know the the story of the miracle of you know the three people falling safely to the ground and and think that it was just a bunch of Catholic propaganda. But who knows? Yeah, it was a weird time. Definitely. Um, I brought up the thing about like if they talk about it or not because I was gonna the whole thing with like how. China likes to, I guess, um, I would say this is true for, like, a lot of, uh, like, the countries over there in Asia. But, um, like, I think Vietnam does it, too. How they just, like, alter their history, like, in their museums and, like, their historical monuments and stuff like that. And, like, yeah. they kind of alter the history to, like, make it seem like they were always in the right, you know. Right. And I th- I think that's something not necessarily a geographical thing as much as it is a political thing. Okay. Yeah. You know, you have like 
when the Soviet Union was still a thing and uh, when the Bolsheviks originally took over and they're going through and kind of purging all of the historical monuments and everything that made the czar look good and replacing it with things that made like Lenin look good or Trotsky or whatever. I mean, that's just something you're going to have when you have like an authoritarian regime. It's all about propaganda. It's all about trying to control the information that is available to the citizenry. So I don't know if it's like, I agree, like China definitely does that. Like, I don't, I don't think anybody with a, with a sense of what's going on in China would have any reason to doubt that they would willingly change, you know, yeah. public representation of Chinese history to make the Chinese look better or make them, you know, make the communist party look better compared to the previous regime. But I think that that's more so just an issue of who's in charge and how they choose to remain in charge. You know what I mean? Like yeah, that's not necessarily a, a geographical thing. Like I, I'm sure, you know, when the Taliban took over in Afghanistan just recently, I'm sure they went through and purged museums of artifacts from, you know, a pre Islamic fundamentalist time frame to make it, you know, appear as though Afghanistan was always Islamic fundamentalist. You know, it's all about just controlling what people see. Yeah. Um, so, like, what would you say your favorite, like, subject of history, like, or I guess, like, subtopic of history is? Well, my favorite sub. So, it's it's complicated. The way, at least the way I see it, the way I delineate between different subtopics of history is by both era and like geography or you know a places a nation's history or a people's history or a certain occupation's history or something like that lately well what i've always been most interested in just personally and it's something that I don't know why I always have been. It's just always struck me. And this is both a historical thing, a literature thing, because I'm also really a big literature nerd, which that's not important right now, but it kind of factors into it, is kind of the turn of the century from the 19th to the 20th century. Yeah. Um, kind of the later Gilded Age and into the period just surrounding the First World War has always just fascinated me. Mm -hmm. I feel like it's a very interesting case study in how a civilization, not just a culture, you know, not just like American culture or French culture or British culture, but the whole of Western civilization and how we understand it shifted. Yeah, you I was going to say like that was the turning point, right? Yeah. That's That was, if I had to make the call, and I don't know because I don't really care much for people's uh, for other people's like delineations of history. <laughs> yeah. If I had to make the call, that's when I would say we shifted from just the modern world, modern in, you know, the historical sense like you have early modern which is the 1600s and into the 1700s you have modern which is pretty much everything post industrial revolution. But I think if you want to break that up, you have the modern period ending and you kind of go into this postmodern period that we're, we're in now. You mm -hmm. know what I mean? Yeah. And that's, again, that's difficult because you talk about like 
you talk about modern versus postmodern in literature, and that shift doesn't happen until after the Second World War. Yeah. And I think that that's a fair, like, really, if you want to be broad with it, I think you can extend this period of change to the end of the Second World War, because really, that's the most abrupt, immediate change. Mm-hmm. But I'm more interested in the change that came before that, that kind of set it all up. Because, like, you're having people dealing with authority in ways that they've never dealt with before. Yeah. You have people. You know, even within the monarchies that still exist prior to the First World War, you have people, you have the state, you have, you know, people starting to be able to vote in countries that aren't the United States or Britain, which is kind of just a crazy, like a crazy thought. Like, and you have people treating authority and treating their traditions and treating their customs in ways that nobody's ever really thought to do before. Like, it's never been something that's been up for debate. And while there are certainly things that came out of this, you know, questioning of authority and tradition that I personally don't agree with, I think that it's still just a fascinating time period to see those backbones that kind of break with the watershed of, of World War II. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And yeah. it's all the stuff before that that really fascinates me. Yeah. Um, so, I guess... I guess I want to say, um, <clears throat> sorry, I just lost my train of thought, but, um, are there any, are there any like specific stories that stand out to you during that time that like, I guess you would say, um, you would just like put at the top of your list. Cause like I'm, I'm learning, I'm learning like so much right now. <laughs> um, well, it's not necessarily a story as much as it is a, a piece of writing Okay. that I feel like stands out. And it was, it came up in a conversation with one of my professors, um, Dr. Chuck Clark at UA. If anybody ever has to take a history class, take a Chuck Clark class. I love the guy. He's probably my favorite professor. No offense to any of the other guys that I get taught I, by because yeah. they're all great too. But he, he was talking about the end of World War I. And how so many people see it is this like, you know, society, like the past is gone. We are now in a, a postmodern world. Like everybody wants to look back at World War One and say World War One is what broke the mold. <laughs> like what broke tradition, it broke art, it broke literature, it broke all of these other customs. And he was talking and he said how he doesn't necessarily see that as true. While he says that it certainly did, you know, inspire a lot of change that came down the road it didn't necessarily change the reality of western civilization yet and what he pointed out he pointed out a poem by uh william butler yates which has been quoted um most notably when i was watching the sopranos it came up in the last season which i thought was kind of funny the way it was um quoted but it's it's called the second coming And it's very dark, a very modernist um, and pessimistic tone. Um, But it still manages to encapsulate the iconography of Western civilization. It encapsulates the form and the the awe of the Romantic era. It still harbors all of these sentiments and feelings that come from a previous time but are challenging the time now 
like they're challenging what is happening now, specifically in reference to the First World War. I'm trying to, I know I should have this memorized by now, but I'm going to. How long is it? It's very short. Oh, okay. Um, and I'm only going to read um, the parts that I think stand out and the parts that most people know. Um, so the first, the first stanza goes, Turning and turning in the widening gyre, the falcon cannot hear the falconer. Things fall apart, the sinner cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. The blood-dimmed tide is loosed, and everywhere the ceremony of innocence is drowned. The best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. So that's, that's you know, the gist of it is all of these symbols and all of the, the manner of writing is essentially the same. It reads almost as a, you know, a darker romantic poem, but it reflects the changing reality that these people are experiencing because of the war, because of the shift between modernism and postmodernism. It's starting to freak people out you know what i mean and some people like yates are almost stepping back and saying you know they're taking an objective look at things and they're like well we have um you know the best lack all conviction and the worst are filled with passionate intensity it's you have these two sides where there's nothing that's getting done positively you know what i mean yeah. it's just a, it was a very stressful time for everybody i guess is what i'm trying to say without taking up too much time yeah um so correct me if i'm wrong but we had world world war one mm -hmm. and then we went into the great depression mm -hmm. after right and then what got us out of that was the second world war more or less, that's, okay. a, that's a very simplified way of looking at it, but it's one that for all intents and purposes works. Yeah. Um, there was, so the First World War ended in 1918. Okay. The yeah. um, Depression started around 1929, so there was a good decade where things weren't bad. You yeah, because we you had like the Roaring Twenties. Right, yeah. the Roaring Twenties, the whole idea of American soldiers are coming back from this World War that Europe was just decimated in. We are the financial power of the world now because we're fixing Europe. And we hardly had, compared to you know France, Britain, and Germany, we hardly lost anybody in comparison. We, all, we you know, lost a great many of soldiers to battlefield casualties and illnesses and such like that. But in comparison, it was not anywhere near the same. And we just experienced this big economic boom, this period of you know, optimism. Yeah. We did, not Europe. Europe is entirely different. They were not happy about this at all. But then the Depression comes around, and it's back to being dull and, and pessimistic, just like the rest of the world was at the time. And then, yeah, more or less between um, domestic policies and then the war coming along and boosting war industries and, and putting people to work, it, it pretty much fixed what was left of the Great Depression. Yeah, and then to go back just a little bit, what was the whole, like, what got us into the Depression? It was the banking system, right? Yeah, it, it was. A, it's a very complicated ordeal, and depending on who you ask in terms of what their economic and fiscal um, politics are, they'll tell you different things. But for the most part, it had to do with the stock market and the banks. Um, the stock market was 
not necessarily new, but it was still, you know, it still had that new car smell kind of, yeah. it was all new and shiny and everybody wanted to try it. And, and what people were doing was they were speculating on all of these different, uh, you know, stocks and everything that was being traded. And what they would do is they would take out these loans from banks to, you know, make these, to buy these stocks or to put money into some sort of enterprise. And eventually this whole speculative bubble just kind of burst. Yep. And what ended up happening was the banks at the time were kind of in on the whole speculation and they were expect, they thought this was, you know, a sure deal. They would get their money back. So the bank was loaning out more money than they had to pay people back out. Because that's kind of how, you know, a bank works. You put your money into the bank. Your money technically doesn't just sit there. It's then used by the bank to loan out or do whatever. But the bank is expected to, when you come to make a withdrawal, have the money or have enough money in its reserves that they can pay you out your withdrawal. It's not necessarily like they don't take a briefcase full of your money and just stick it on a shelf and forget about it. Yeah. But what was happening back then, because there weren't necessarily regulations to stop the banks from doing this, they would loan out more money than they had to pay out, you know, this pay out to the savings of the people in their bank. Mm-hmm. So when the, the speculative bubble burst and all of a sudden a lot of capital is just kind of floating around and nobody's, you know, nobody has any means of, of making any money on it people start to freak out. They go to the bank and they start to withdraw, but they can't withdraw because the banks don't have enough money. The banks realize they're not going to get the payments back on the loans because the market crashed and all of these people taking out money can't pay back in. So all of the major banks are starting to fail. This panic just reaches the whole country. Everybody goes to the banks. It turns out all of the banks have done this exact same thing with different, you know, enterprises loaning money out to, you know, somebody who's wanting to buy a farm, but they're loaning out more than they have in their reserves. And so everybody's going back to try and withdraw their money. The banks don't have it. All of a sudden, just a massive amount of money is just poof, gone. Yep. And so nobody has their money. Jobs are starting to, you know, all of these businesses that took out these loans are starting to freak out. They're starting to lay people off. All of these businesses that relied on savings, that relied on, you know, money being there at all are starting to go under. People are losing their jobs. People who already don't have money are losing their jobs. It's a very bad time for everybody. Yeah, I was going to say that kind of follows up to my, or that kind of leads me into my next question is I was going to ask you, like, did anybody, like, were there any, like, I guess, big business people or people in the government who, like, I guess, made a profit off of the Great Depression? Not, not really. And if they did, they got away with it for the most part, you know, like, yeah. Now this, again, this isn't something that I'm super educated on. Yeah. My interest kind of goes up to the depression and kind of stops. So I'm not super in the know as to how people in the government and people high up responded to this. But from my understanding, this hurt everybody. Yeah. Because think about it this way, even the people high up, the the major business owners and everything that are relying on investments and are relying on people putting money into these public enterprises don't have that anymore. The the market's essentially dead. Yeah. You know, like nothing really is happening because when the market crashed in 
28 and 29, that, that was kind of it. You know what I mean? Like there's nobody left to put money into these businesses to fuel these enterprises. So they're suffering the government. If they didn't get voted out because they allowed the great depression to happen, like Herbert Hoover. Yeah. We're also having to struggle with the fact that any enterprise that they were involved in is now likely going under and the banks and their constituency are failing and they're having to, to figure this whole thing out. And at this time it was, everything was connected, but in a different way than we think about it now. You know what I mean? Like businesses and politicians and lobbying, all of this stuff happened, but it was, it's different than how we think about it now. But when the businesses start suffering and the money just starts disappearing, it hurts everybody. And nobody's really going to be able to turn a great profit on it. What it did eventually turn people a profit was some of the New Deal uh, organizations, some of the work projects. Um, and then eventually when we got into the war, obviously people and war industries are going to benefit. Yeah. But you have, that was the whole plan was you benefit these industries specifically by starting work projects, you know, like the TVA, yeah. Tennessee Valley Authority, all of that sort of thing. And not necessarily a trickle down effect, but once you start putting money back into the economy, there's money there, you yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. To replace the money that's now gone. And it kind of will start to stabilize itself. People will go back to work. People will have jobs. Even if you're just digging ditches on the side of the road, that's better than waiting in a bread line. You know yeah. what I mean? And that was the whole thought. People wanted to work, but they couldn't find any work. So we're going to throw money in. And yeah, it benefited some people at the top because naturally it has to because it's replacing it's trying to replace the money that's gone yeah but to say that somebody was necessarily like better off because of the stock market crash and the depression is not necessarily something that's super true okay yeah definitely um what are your thoughts on fdr um that's a great question (laughs) i'm glad you brought up something that uh I'm not going to rant a lot about for fear of um, retribution. I'm not a big FDR fan. Okay. um, Personally. And that's just because of my own, um, my own opinions regarding the role of government and the role of, of management, especially within the executive branch and especially during a time of crisis. I'm going to give props to the guy for figuring it out eventually you know, with the help of the war and all of his organizations. But in terms of an, in terms of a, an individual who was properly organizing things and trying to run things in a professional and, you know, executive manner, I can't really give him points there. He, he kind of had his hangups, you know what I mean? Yeah. And of course his politics were, um, interesting to, to someone like me. So I'm not a big FDR fan. But I recognize that what happened during FDR's presidency in order, you know, in order to right the ship was likely the necessary outcome. Okay, fair enough, fair enough. Um, I really don't, I guess personally, like, I don't feel informed enough about it, like, to have an opinion. So, like, now I I bring somebody like you on here, (laughs) and I, I get to ask somebody who, like, actually knows what they're talking about. Yeah, and and... 
I don't mean to like put my opinion on anybody else. What right. I'd say is just right. if yeah. you want to make an opinion about somebody, get a book about the guy and, and, and you know, read about him. Yeah. I did that with Eisenhower not too long ago. I wanted, you know, I didn't know really hardly anything about Eisenhower beyond his uh, term as the Supreme Allied Commander during the Second yeah. World War. But, you know, I kind of wanted to know a bit more about him and I read a book about him and, you know, it kind of it informs you a little bit. And then you can start to make decisions as to whether or not you like a guy. Personally. So do you like Eisenhower? Yeah, I like Eisenhower okay. well enough. I mean, he's, you can't deny that he's an American hero for, for what he did oh, in the yeah, Second World definitely. War. And the way he handled everything was um, very professional. At times, not so much, but it's kind of what happens in the middle of war. Yeah. Um, as a president, he kind of did what he had to do. You know what I mean? Like... Imagine you just finished serving as the Supreme Allied Commander in World War II and, you know, eight years later, however, you're elected president. You know what I mean? Like, you don't really know what you're doing, but you know what you have to do. Yeah. That's kind of Eisenhower. Because was he after Johnson? No, he was no. before Kennedy. Oh, okay. He was after Truman okay. before Kennedy. He okay. was president for almost all of the 50s. Two terms? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Um, so, who would you say is at the top of your list in terms of U.S. presidents? Yes. It's tricky. Um, in the past, I would have told you either Jefferson or Reagan, um, just based on how I was. But to be honest with you, I don't know if I have a good answer. I'd probably say out of any of them, Jefferson. Um, yeah, it's really tough because when you get into a certain degree of, of learning about it and learning about the things that people do as president, yeah, you come to realize that everybody does good things and everybody does bad things. Yeah. You know what I mean? You kind of go beyond just politics and you get to the nitty gritty of things and you realize that like nobody's perfect. Oh, you know yeah, what I mean? Definitely. Nobody's a saint nobody's going to do the right thing all the time and nobody's going to be a good president all the time. That's just how it goes to say. Otherwise is just blatantly wrong. Um, like Reagan, you have some really great, uh, things that happened under the Reagan uh, regime. You have essentially this upsurge in, in pride and in, in the American identity. You have this sort of cultural change that favors American excellence in a way that, eventually turned out to be one that's rather belligerent, you know, how we have like American excellence today. But yeah. originally it was, it was not necessarily so. It was trying to hearken back to the good, the, you know, quote unquote, good times of the post-war period. You know what I mean? It was, it was just a, I think, in my opinion, a necessary cultural period for the United States. Mm -hmm. But then you also have certain things like the Iran-Contra scandal, which was you know, a big deal. It was kind of a bad thing to do. You know what I mean? It, what was that? It was, um, it involved selling weapons to people that we didn't necessarily agree with as a country illegally in okay. order to help other people that we agreed with less Okay. to make it, yeah. yeah, to make it just really plain. Um, it was entirely illegal. Um, but so that's what I'm talking about. Right. Love Reagan, but he did things that were not good. And to say, you know, even things like trickle-down economics, like economically, doesn't make any sense. I mean, it makes sense, but it doesn't make sense in theory. 
And we can't like, you know, as the American right, you can't say, oh, communism, it's great in theory, but sucks in practice. And then look at trickle down economics and say, trickle down economics is the future because it's yeah. the same thing. It's great in theory. It doesn't work. Yeah. You know what I mean? So that's that's the thing with Reagan. I guess I would have to say to answer your question and to stop rambling, I would have to say Thomas Jefferson, likely. But even then, <coughs> it's. It's a difficult question, and I don't have a good answer. Okay, fair enough. Um, I was just wondering, but um, so are you? Are you a big first World War guy? You'd say, I like think as, I would. as opposed to the second. I think I would. And in the past, when I was a kid, I loved the Second World War. Mm-hmm. Like I have back back at my house in Florida, I have so many books about just the Second World War. And about, you know, the people involved and all of the, the operational stuff up to the strategic level. I loved it. But as I've matured and as I've gained interest in certain periods of history and certain aspects of it, the First World War to me is so much more fascinating. Mm-hmm. And it's largely because it fits nicely in that era of history that I really enjoy studying and right. learning about and reading and talking about. So... It just, it's so much more fascinating to me. I would say right now, the First World War is my, is my favorite war to study. And that's such a weird thing to say, like it being your favorite war, but (laughs) that's, that's kind of how it is. So who were the, just to analyze a little bit, I need need a refresher, Mm -hmm. but um, who are the key players on either side of that? Okay. So for the First World War, it was, you essentially, it's very similar in terms of the belligerents to the Second World War, mm-hmm. um, in that on one side you have the German Empire and Austria, or right. the Austro-Hungarian Empire, yeah. and then the Ottoman Empire, and technically Italy. Okay, yeah. Italy's confusing because they switch sides, <laughs> Yeah, as they do, um, to be very simple about it. Um, those are the central powers. Then you have the Entente, or the... Um, can't really, not necessarily allied, but for all intents and purposes, the allied powers, which initially were Britain, France, and Russia, the, uh, the Russian Empire. And then as the war goes on, well, and Serbia, but in terms of the major powers, just think about it as Britain, uh, France, Russia versus Germany, Austria, Ottoman okay. Empire. Yeah. And then obviously as the war goes on, Italy joins the Entente powers, the United States joins the war in 1917. Um, several other of the smaller Balkan states um, join and fight against whoever. You have the Austro-Hungarians fighting the Serbians in the Baltic, or uh, in the Balkans, not the Baltic. Did I say Baltic earlier? You said, entirely different You said the Balkans. <laughs> okay, yeah, good. I think so. Um, you have the Germans fighting the Russians and the French. You have the British in France fighting the Germans. You have the Italians fighting Lord knows who. Um, <laughs> the Ottomans are fighting themselves. Uh, the Japanese are in the Pacific fighting the Germans um, because there are Germans in the Pacific. Who would have thought? Who would have thought? <laughs> thought? Yeah, so that's, that's the uh, gist of it. Um. Yeah, and it was like it was all sparked by the assassination of Franz Ferdinand, correct? Yeah, to the same, well, to a similar but lesser degree that the Thirty Years' War in the 1600s was sparked by the defenestration of Prague. Okay, you know what I mean? Like okay, there was same a concept, tremendous yeah. series of incidents and 
political realities and, and, uh, and, you know, alliances and cultural understanding of what war is and if war is good or not that went into making this war long before Franz Ferdinand was assassinated. Yeah. But when he was assassinated, that was kind of the spark. You know what I mean? It's imagine you have this big warehouse and slowly but surely you start filling it with gunpowder and gasoline. And then eventually some guy walks in and tosses a lit cigarette at it. And the whole thing goes up in flames. Yeah. That's how the first world war started. That's really how most wars start. Unless it's like, the Second World War, in which the war starts because you have one um, expansionist uh, maniac who just decides he's going to start invading people. Um, so, yeah, the First <laughs> World War, it, well, yeah. yeah, it was sparked by the assassination of Franz Ferdinand. It wasn't caused by the assassination of Franz Ferdinand, if yeah. that makes sense. Okay, yeah, definitely. Um, so shifting from then to now. Yeah. I have to ask you about like your <laughs> thoughts of the situation in Ukraine. Naturally. <laughs> um, I don't know. If you had asked me this a month ago, a month and a week, or whenever it started, I would have given you a much more pessimistic answer and that I felt we were spiraling uncontrollably towards a third world war. Um, but... <laughs> Now, I, I kind of see it a little bit different. And as, as a matter of fact, I think that while we're going to see Putin and the very few people that I believe are still inherently loyal to Putin in Russia become more and more desperate as they realize that they're not necessarily losing in Ukraine, but they're not winning at the same time. Mm-hmm. And they're certainly losing on the global scale in terms of respect, in terms of the sanctions that are just piling on, right. in terms of the oligarchs and all of the business that we hear about, you know, the Russian oligarchs. Like, they are losing the strategic overall battle. And I think they're, you're, we're going to see them become more and more desperate, as we already have. I mean, they're, they've essentially turned from we're invading, it's a special military exercise or whatever, to... We're just bombing civilians because we want to wipe Ukraine clean off the face of the earth. Like, that's where we're at now. And it's only going to get worse. Right. You know, heaven forbid they they even think of using nuclear weapons. But if they did, I think we can, we as Americans can rest somewhat assured that they won't be targeted at us. Um, They'd likely just be local. Um, Warheads launched it. Ukraine, but even that is a terrifying precedent to be set. Um, however, in, in the face of all this pessimism, we have the optimistic hope that this crushing defeat that the Russians are facing on a global scale is going to ultimately force them to reconsider. Not just the yeah. war, but also the regime. I think a lot of people, and that's becoming more and more of a the talked about possibility granted it's a very fringe possibility and not one that I'd say you should bank on, you know what I mean? Or, or certainly not if you're a gambling man <laughs> um, <laughs> would be that the regime Putin's, you know, rule is invalidated by mm-hmm. all of this, that the people of Russia, which we already see committing these in immensely brave acts of 
standing up and protesting their government, which has no problem locking them in prison for right. a very long time. We're just killing so. them or just yeah, killing yeah. them, you know, getting rid of them. We we're starting to see this tide kind of turn and hopefully turn for the better, the better obviously being a removal of the maniac that's in power yeah. <laughs> before he decides to do a 1939 and invade Poland, which would be the start of a third world war. Yeah, because Poland, Poland's in NATO, right? Yes. But Ukraine's not. Ukraine was not. And they wanted to join. Part of the justification that the Russians and even the Chinese, because the Chinese are weirdly on the fence about this, but they intellectually favor the Russians because the Chinese want to grab Taiwan. But also the Chinese can't like directly help the Russians because they're technically neutral. Yeah. It's a, it's a very complicated thing, and I don't fully understand that either but um yeah the part of what russia says caused the war in the first place was the fact that ukraine wanted to be in nato and they wanted to be in the european union and russia feels as though or putin feels as though this is just nato aggression trying to creep closer and closer to russia and like strangle them out which yeah i mean that's that's kind of it's kind of true yeah in the fact that NATO would love nothing more than to make Russia scared and weak. Yeah. Because Russia is ultimately not only in the past, but still to this day, the biggest threat to NATO. Because they want, they want control over Europe as like a sphere of influence. Just like how China wants control over Taiwan and Southeast Asia as a sphere of influence. And NATO moving closer to Russia eliminates his ability to necessarily establish that sphere of influence and so he's afraid and with good reason because he should be afraid of nato being at his doorstep because it means russia's less important yeah and they don't have the ability to do what they want to do in the global scale um but that's also it's also not a justification for a full-fledged assault on a country because the country voluntarily wants to join a treaty organization yeah you know what i mean like that's that's how this whole thing goes because they recognize Russia recognizes and so does Ukraine that if Ukraine is in NATO, Russia cannot attack Ukraine without the full force of the free world bearing down on Russia. Yeah, that's what NATO is. It's a mutual defense treaty, which means that if a country is attacked or a country feels threatened, that country has every right to call upon every other member of NATO, which is a global organization spearheaded by the most powerful military force that the world has ever seen to help them, which is not exactly what Russia wants. Right. But at the same time, you, you still can't invade a country because they want to join a treaty organization. Yeah. Like that's the whole, that's the whole long and short of it. Yeah. And I guess like when it first started, I was really just anticipating like, I guess like, some country making an example out of yeah. Russia, you know, yeah. like, like this is what happens when like, you know, you try to invade like a harmless country. Right. Cause you know, um, but like we haven't seen that really. No. And we kind of can't, yeah. we kind of can't do that because it's, it's volatile. We, we recognize that, could the combined forces of NATO, frankly, could the United States alone defeat Russia in a field of combat? Yeah. Yeah. 
I, I don't think that's even a question, especially how the Russian army looks in their invasion of Ukraine. I don't know if you've noticed that, but the Russian army looks stale, old, and incompetent, frankly. They, should have, they really should have conquered Ukraine about half a month ago, but their forces are just disastrously unprepared, um, un- poorly equipped. Like Their army does not look like a 21st century military should. So I would have no doubt that the United States could, in a, in a, a battle against Russia, defeat them on the field of combat. But that's not really the concern. The concern is, would attacking Russia or you know, even defending Ukraine with American troops cause a broader conflict that we frankly don't want to get into because we as 21st century humans recognize that war is bad yeah. <laughs> inherently Yeah. Um, because we've done it a lot. <laughs> we did it a lot not even 100 years ago. The most devastating conflict in the history of humanity was less than 100 years ago. And we don't really want to do that again. And we recognize that if we go to war with Russia and try to make an example out of them, it's going to happen again. And things are going to get bad for everybody caught in the middle. It probably won't be us. It probably won't even be Russia. The problem is it would be fought in Ukraine. Yeah. It would be fought in Belarus. It would be fought in Poland. And these countries would just get decimated. Their yeah, civilian I was population say they wouldn't be able destroyed. to take it. No. Yeah. And, and for what? We would end up having one country's piss that they lost. The other country is, you know, victorious, but at what cost? You know what I mean? Like it's nobody wins that situation. So that's why we can't like go in and make an example of Russia, no matter how much I guarantee you every general in the Pentagon would jump on that opportunity in a heartbeat if they knew that there would be no geopolitical repercussions. But I don't know. It's, so really, our policy has to just be we sit here and wait it out and we help the Ukrainians however we can. But that that stops at putting boots on the ground. Yeah. One hundred percent. And then did you did you we talked a little or I saw something a little bit about this, about um, how we have like we have I forgot what is it like F-35s or. Yeah. In Germany. Yeah. And Poland was like, hey, do you want to like give us those? Yeah. And we were like, uh, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. The, we, we have been steadily moving more and more forces, and that includes air crews. Um, last I saw, I believe there was um, a crew of helicopter pilots and helicopters being sent. We are steadily increasing the NATO presence overall on countries that either are central to European strategy, like Germany, or are essentially on the front lines of what would be a new NATO-Russia conflict, which is Poland, the Baltic states, um, Romania, all of those countries that, you know, if you think of Europe as kind of two blocks again, which terrifies me that I have to, you know, refer to a Cold War concept, you have, you know, those sort of border states, those are border countries, States, yeah. countries, nations. And that's where we're sending resources to so that they can not only defend themselves if something happens, but so that we're also ready if they get invaded yeah. to have an American presence in that country to repel the invasion. Yeah, definitely. Um, I'm not I'm not as informed as I'd like to be because like in the past, honestly, since... Since the time Trump became president, I've not watched the news. Yeah. Like, it just... 
gets depressing. Yeah, it's very to, depressing. To yeah, <laughs> I have extremely so. The the first few nights of the of the Russo Ukrainian war or whatever we're gonna call it in twenty years, um, I I watched the uh, the news broadcast into the late evening and early morning because that's you know mid morning for Ukraine and that's when a lot of the fighting was happening and and I just you know keep up with it. But ever since I realized that the war isn't going to end as quickly as the Russians hoped, I kind of moved on from it. Yeah, just like I was um, I was on a trip a couple weekends ago and we were at a hotel and uh, the, the hotel had like CNN on and it was just mm-hmm. like uh, this this many civilian casualties, like this many injured, this many dead, like. Right. Yada yada yada, and I was like, "Oh my gosh, man! Like, yeah. I just this is why I don't watch the news, you know." Yeah. If it's not depressing, it's just one more battle in the culture wars that are going on in the United States. Which yeah, I was gonna say like that. We, we could have an entire yeah another we'd, podcast. We'd rather not yeah, I was right gonna say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man, but um, I think this just about wraps us up um i really appreciate you yeah, it's been coming a pleasure here. yeah i learned a lot um yeah. such I'm as glad. there were two defenestrations <laughs> <laughs> of specifically in prague yeah in prague yeah, yeah. Which two is just yeah. one city <laughs> yeah <laughs> there yeah. may be another that i haven't heard of yeah I'll, I'll get back to you on that but we need i need a uh we were talking about this before we went live but i need an assistant so um yeah if you want to if you want to be like a like if I'm Joe Rogan and you want to be Jamie, just uh, send me send me a shout um, at There Are No Rules podcast on Instagram. But anyways, that, that, that's a serious thing. Um, I'm being dead serious when I say that. But anyways, um, yeah, this has been uh, Brody Brown, and um, thanks. Th- yeah, like I said, thanks for coming on, and uh, thank you everybody for listening, and bye everybody. <laughs>